Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Did you know the top 10 mobile games in the U.S. gross more than $340 million in June? Do you want your game to earn more? App Figures is all about giving game makers the tools they need to get more downloads and revenue. You may already know them for analytics and app store optimization. Now, App Figures can help you keep track of competitors and the game market. From how many downloads they're getting and how much money they're making to their audience demographics and even which tools they use to power their games. Their competitor intelligence gives you great context. Got a great idea for an app or a game? With App Figures, you can figure out how big the market is and how much money you could be making with it. Say a competitor adds a new feature or was mentioned in the news. With App Figures, you can see if that brought in more downloads. And that's just scratching the surface. Whether you're growing your game or building a new one, App Figures has what you need to reduce risk and get more downloads. Best of all, you don't need a large budget or data science degree to do this kind of thing anymore. App Figures has made it affordable and simple. On top of tools, App Figures also provides a lot of guides and tutorials to take you step-by-step through gaining more visibility with ASO and increasing your revenue by learning from your competitors. They just released a free guide on that, actually. Head to appfigures.com forward slash on forward slash gain dev unchained to try app figures for free again that's app figures a-p-p-f-i-g-u-r-e-s dot com forward slash o-n forward slash gain dev unchained to try it for free if you like it use our special code gdu3030 to get 30 percent off for the next three months Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Game Dev Unchained, the number one game development podcast about game development and the lifestyle thereof. I am your host, Brandon Pham, and I'm back at it for a part two of five series highlighting the best of 2021. This week, every day, there's going to be a new episode out. Each episode this week will concentrate on a particular topic that is setting our future for the next 10 years. So the last episode was about how the pandemic obviously have changed the industry forever. And this one is further exploring what it means to be a game developer nowadays, pushing the envelope and the boundaries of allowing game developers to move across movies, enterprise, architecture, whatever it may be. 
So what's been happening in the last five years, real-time workflows are being adopted by everybody that is outside of the game industry. The response rate of real-time is a great factor to why that is happening. So these are all things that have been blossoming. And in the past year, especially, the convergence is here. In the movie industry, we're already seeing a lot of virtual production, like how on The Mandalorian, the Unreal is being used to make the backdrops live. And on these LED light screens, uh, it's actually lighting the actors and the set uh, and is multi-purposeful for not just visually compelling, but also practical as this was a major factor to how the Mandalorian season two was made while the whole industry was being shut down. This allowed the show to keep going on uh, because they don't have to go on different location set. They had a very protected and cost-effective warehouse with this virtual backdrop and they were able to continue working as as uh, as needed. So it's a very exciting episode and we talked to a lot of people uh, to kind of illustrate to you listeners out there uh, why this is important for anyone that is looking to get in the game industry who are already in the game industry and are looking at ways to broaden the tools and strength that they already developed to help other things that is not particularly about games. So for this first, uh, for this first episode, I was able to sit down with Mauro Frau, who is the CEO of Treehouse Ninjas and is one of the uh, creative partners with Unity that helped brought the tech demo, the heretic to life. So using Unity, they were able to make a lot of progress that used to only be exclusive to just the film industry. So if you missed it last year, go ahead and listen to this highlight. But if you are interested, as always, check the full episode 259, The Convergence of Games and Movies with Mauro Frau. I would love to kind of hear uh, you kind of retracing those steps that you talked about. And and what is that future when Mm -hmm. it's not exactly games and it's not exactly movie, it's going to be its own thing. And it's kind of riding off of what you're saying about AR powered entertainment, right? Once they figure out the battery problem, it's going to be a a whole set of different directors, whole generation of content uh, makers to make this third lane possible. Yes, I think it's uh, it's a uh, it's an interesting limbo that uh, it also comes from this this sort of sad uh, realization of seeing movies, especially mainstream movies, really being over and over same 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 same, right? Uh, and it's just like sequel of sequel and prequel and sequel, and then eventually you're watching the same soup, preserved and reheated. Um, and games uh, are not yet there. is a is a younger medium, but I, I don't think there are two. I mean, they are sort of in the same trajectory. There are lots of lots of products that are sort of starting to to feel like lacking ideas and going for scale rather than rather than you know novelty. Um, so 
seeing both games and movies, you know, endangered by this saturation of contents, uh, it's cool to see that they might, you know, gain from each other uh, the best ingredients that they have, and and then have this like hybrid future where where uh, they would influence uh, each other and. Uh, you know the the choose your own adventure kind of situation is is a bit of the most probably the first idea that would come at mind. Um, but if you think about it, like in the moment where we have a movie that it's already being shot in a virtual environment, like because imagine that it's it's being fully realized inside of a non-existing virtual world that is fully photorealistic, and the crew was on in that world when they were shooting. Uh, in the moment that that data is actually, how to say, um, affordable to run uh, in uh, home computer systems, and today home computers are insanely powerful, um, you might want, to, you might have just think of reproposing the movie world for uh, the audiences to use to step in. You know, imagine like you watch a movie and you like it, and then you just like walk inside of it back again. Um, this is why in the talk I, I've been mentioning a crazy thing as like uh, um, emergent movie making, which would be like movies made with multiple things happening. I don't know if you remember a movie like, for example, like Quentin Tarantino, it was uh, Four Rooms. Quentin, Quentin Tarantino and Altman, those um, like uh, postmodern directors of like the 90s, they were experimenting a lot with telling you the same story from multiple perspectives. And it was so interesting, right? You would discover certain things about a story, but then eventually they would tell you the same exact story back in time. And they would tell you what was happening in the same moment, but in the, in the next room. And, uh, and you would figure out element, including ingredients of the same story. They would just like twist your reading of the same story. So we might want to ju just to think of movies that are crafted that way with the idea of like, uh, well, I, 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 me as a director, I give you one take on the story, but then you as an audience, you step in and you make you, your own movie or you just, you know, you just like exploit the world more. Um, it's an idea that actually puts its roots in sandbox games or in even stuff like dreams or even minecraft when it's not just about what we as content creator force you to experience but it's also giving you something that that you can pull out something out of it with your own hands as a, as a player as an audience um, so it's this hybrid situation that uh, that is uh, that is really attractive and that's also about the reasons and the, the spirit behind having set up these Treehouse Ninjas studios and having tried to keep it hybrid with people from movies and people for games and see if we can get an edge over, you know, embracing these, these, these thoughts and catching trains that might pass and they might be very invisible to the, the most people. And maybe we can try as an independent studio experimenting things that you, as a corporation, you really cannot yeah, it's huge. Uh, well, I would love to kind of dig into that a bit. You, you get you mentioned you you got a group of your friends and colleagues together uh, to to experiment. You know, to to pave the future. You're a very introspective guy. Obviously, a lot of your thoughts are very intriguing. I, I wish we had more <laughs> uh, dedicated game developers thinking like this because I do think I've said it many times on the podcast. If there were if we ever were to head towards the matrix, right, which is the ultimate 
uh, not goal, but I would say the danger, right? It would be a game developer. It would be be powered by Unity or Unreal, right? <laughs> that's mm-hmm. that's that's really you know everything's converging to that point. Um, but uh, I believe you guys are are in Hungary, Budapest. Right? We are, yeah. Okay, so like, how did that? Did you have a background in creating startups? Like that must have been an adventure in itself, right? I would love to kind of it hear has. more of that. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, um, I mean, that's where where uh, my partner Zoltan comes at play because he he's a he's the producer, right? I am I'm the creative director. He's the managing director. So this is that kind of stuff. When somebody asks me, lots of people obviously dream about having their own studio and setting things up, and I always suggest if you're an artist uh, really consider uh, partnering with uh, with somebody that is a production person somebody that has that mindset we we are two archetypes of brains that are very different the artist is the artist the producer and the manager is the producer and the manager we find ourselves collaborating a lot because we need to understand each other needs of course and that takes a lot of experience for an artist to get into the production mindset and for a production for the producer to get into the artist mindset uh, but in general i i can't imagine you know dealing with all the the, the, the classic bureaucratic taxation laws and things uh, uh, not to mention that my hungarian is literally non-existent so i wouldn't even be able to handle <laughs> handle it um so it was very lucky that we met and we, we got in line with many of the basic principles that we believe into in what makes a working environment uh, successful and motivating. This is a bit behind the, what's behind the, the name of the company, which is Treehouse Ninjas, right? It's a bit of a synthesis of a treehouse is a, is a place that is welcoming. You know, it's, it's a place where you as a kid, you want to be in. It inspires you some nice vibes. Uh, and, and, uh, but at the same time, ninjas is what brings back that kind of dimension of, okay, but we are people that delivers, you know, you know, just like, uh, youngsters playing around with things, uh, we know our stuff. <laughs> and so I guess this, it was this lucky alignment of planets that of stars <laughs> that, uh, we decided to go for it. He, we were tired about the same things of our previous experiences at work and we say let's 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 just forget about corporate environments together and set up our own thing i see like i, w- I would love to hear more of your background i know you you came from both movies and games before trios mm-hmm. ninjas and you guys are i'm looking forward I'm, I'm watching you guys because what you are talking about what you you get you know the spirit behind trios ninjas I, I really do think you're you guys are the trendsenders uh, for for what what's next, um, and like you said, I I, I, <laughs> nice. I do really believe it's like the smaller studios that are always innovating, and um, you you're a little bit special, man. Like I, when I saw your talk, I was like, this guy really sits down and thinks about these things. <laughs> That's most game developers think about uh, you know the next paycheck or going home, right? But like mm-hmm. the, the, ah, the you think so? Yeah, well, I feel like most of them. I mean, like yeah, maybe true. outside of engineers true. and designers, it's more about the next project and like a game idea. But to kind of take ten steps forward, like you do, yeah. at least from what I thought in that talk, it's like wow, he's really thinking about the future of entertainment, like in a way that that's probably what's sticking around with corporate environments that just yeah. drives you to to you know, uh, like the the brain power that I experienced around me in both game and movies is 
insane. Like I've been sitting in environments where I would feel that the combined brain powers of the people around me was, was ridiculous, ridiculous. And we were applying it to things that we could have like been working on the first man of Mars. If we really converted Mm -hmm. the same brain power to something else. Yeah, I, I really believe that. I, I think, you know, everyone's like championing, rightfully so, Elon Musk and all his like, you know, his next idea, what he's working on. And of course, the biggest talk right now is AI. And when I look back at engineers and games, it's like, man, these, we've been creating AIs forever, <laughs> doing like stupid stuff on on the streets of GTA. But it's just, you know, that's what that's what we put our efforts in, into entertainment. But I feel like the same people would be on the bleeding edge of, you know, uh, worldwide technology if they were applying in these tech companies with the same knowledge. And I do actually have friends uh, that were engineers in games that are working at these AI companies after, you know, layoffs or (laughs) deciding Mm. to move on, you know? Uh, Mm. So it's, I do see that transition of if we wanted to apply outside of entertainment, our skill set, which we are seeing with what you were saying with the Virgin movie games, like, you know, knowing Unreal, knowing Unity before used to be for games, but now I see people at Tesla, people at Google, Facebook, doing the same Mm. thing that you were doing before, but with a different purpose. And it just makes me feel really proud that game developers are, are having that security, first of all, but also uh, having influence outside of just games. Uh, and, yeah. and it's not to devalue games. Games are super important. And I think, if anything, we still need games to push the innovation and then yeah. apply those tools elsewhere. Uh, I do think in other areas, there seems to be a limitation because, if anything, I, I, I'm sure you know engineers, they're really bored at these tech companies all the time. <laughs> Fixing yeah email notification codes at Netflix or, or something like mundane and slow. Uh, yeah. And it seems like the, the, the growth happens when they're working on games the most that really pushes uh, the limit. Um, yeah. 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 It, that's a double edged thing though. Anyway, the, the, a lot of the layoff, I mean, it's like all the business about crunch and uh, never ending uh, talks about unionizing and whatnot. Uh, a lot of that uh, also lies in the how desirable the glam, the, the creative um, spirit behind the game industry and movie industry. You know, it, it, this attractiveness of of, of, of the, the entire the entire movie and game production. Uh, it, it brings in so many fresh young uh, um, talent uh, that is sort of how to say. Um, so much soaked in illusion um, that eventually it's illusions of being hyper creatives. And, and sometimes you don't realize that you, what you're facing is a, an actual job. You're going to be told what to do and you're going to have to execute it right. And uh, you're not necessarily going to be doing everyday things that you like, and you're not going to necessarily be putting your own personality and creativity in it. So this is why I say it's a double-edged sword, right? Because sometimes these these, these um, other jobs that uh, in other jobs I would say that they are a little bit more boring. It's easier to say I'm gonna go home at six, right? I I I I don't put I'm not putting my heart inside of this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, like putting your heart can go out of control sometimes and and bite you in the ass if you think about it. Oh yeah, I think uh, 
I think I've always attributed with office politics with being in the office. Now that the whole world is remote, uh, I'm I'm also seeing the opposite effect of people overworking to their own <laughs> detriment, <laughs> right? Because mm. our computer's right there. I didn't get to this one thing earlier today, but now I can, and I'm I'm finding myself and others. They're working more self-imposed rather than a producer telling us to do so. Which is another yeah. surprise I, I didn't really think would be the case. Um, yeah. Even even working from home for a while before the pandemic, uh, I now I'm starting to see that, oh, okay, so creativity, it, it just kind of needs that, I think, sometimes. Uh, because mm. it strikes us when it strikes us, right? It's not a clock in, clock out type of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Dangerous. Yes, dangerous. I'm horrible at that. I'm horrible at that. I live plus I live in a um, in an open space apartment, so I don't even have a door. The computer is looking at me from the other yeah. side, you know, constantly. And if, I think, thankfully, in Hungary we don't have uh, uh, super strong restrictions. We are now working from home, but uh, I can. Uh, I basically brought back my workstation at the office, and I go there. I'm alone <laughs> working mm-hmm. at the office, but I go there and I f- find concentration. And then when I detach from job, uh, I am back home and I don't have a computer at home. Uh, I'm really bad at doing that. Yeah. I'm managing that properly. In this next episode to further push what game tools are doing for other industries. Uh, we, I was able to talk with Luis Corral. So Luis Corral spent a good portion of his recent years at Houdini, uh, to kind of help develop game tools to push the envelope for proceduralism. He's currently at Rockstar, but uh, his main thing and what the industry have been seeing is that these tools are great and seeing real-time feedback is great. And the But the biggest worry has always been how big that this team has to be to support the creative freedom that these directors and um creative directors are having so being effective with the small amount of people that you have around you is the only way to balance out this ever-changing ever-growing landscape of what it takes to bring triple a quality and be financially responsible and what Luis carrill has been doing and tech artists around the world have been pushing for is letting AI and proceduralism do a lot of the heavy work so that our time as artists can be dedicated to coming up with creative solutions. So this episode is from 263, Proceduralism in Games with Luis Correll. Please enjoy. I think the key word that you just talked about, iteration, is... Yeah, kind of <laughs> symbiotic right. to game development and it's the number one reason why uh, game development sometimes takes longer than planned right uh, yeah. because the iteration process either is too slow and it goes through this a through z process before being spit out again and then critiqued and then <laughs> it goes back into a weird circle my 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 thing with game development is like it's never it's never the tools it's always the ideas right but hopefully this minimizes the feedback necessary to kind of get 
a stamp of approval because it's so fast. It's like you're in real time now and you can change things on the fly where an art director uh, can, can, can be there with you and hover basically. <laughs> it's a exactly. dream come true. Uh, so I think, yeah. yeah, just to jump on that one real quick, the, that's what I was going to comment on the, the Promethean stuff too. And that's honestly the biggest challenge we've had uh, with procedural stuff is how do you art direct it? How do you get someone to sit behind that and be like, I want yeah. like 20% <laughs> over here, like that, that yeah. tree, like that tree over there, like pluck it out and move it over here. Yeah. Or I want to swap that one. And it's like, well, it's kind of like this giant system and we just built everything. And if you change that one, if you regenerate it, you lose that. Like that's the whole point of it. Yeah. Um, so kind of how to art direct proceduralism is a, a kind of open problem and there's different solutions on how to do it, but it is an interesting one. And, and to your point, the goal definitely is, and I think like when people ask to define a pipeline, is basically like, what is your tolerance to change and how fast can you iterate on something? So if I say, if I look at a game and I'll be like, there's a seam on that rock, mm-hmm. how long does it take for you to give me that fixed? Mm-hmm. If it is something that you can be like, oh, I can just click on that rock, I content browser, export it, send it to something, export it back and bake the textures and you're done. And that that's even more complicated than it probably needs to be. Uh, but that's a pipeline. It's basically like, if I don't like that coffee cup or coffee cup, how fast can you make something about it? And I think the ideal, which is where people are starting to lean in the virtual production side is you have your art director, you have your design director, you have everybody in the the kind of stage making all of those calls live and as fast as they can. And then that can even be in a rough form in a gray out form, but then you kind of have some processes that come behind it and make it look pretty. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, it, it is that is like, though the the directors making the decisions what game they want to make if that's an indie and that's you the, the sole developer is the director or if it's in a big company and you have multiple art directors right but at the end of the day it's how do you get those visions accomplished mm-hmm. well virtual production is definitely as a environment guy has been a very exciting alluring space <clears throat> you know just like just give anyone a chance to work on those Marvel films. And I was like, yeah, I'll be on set moving rocks around. <laughs> I'll be cool with that. <clears throat> but uh, I would love to kind of hear you dive more into the challenges that they have with proceduralism on, on a movie set, right? Versus a game production. What's the major differences here and the problems that they're dealing with, with an art director hovering on both sides? Is it similar or is it just a little bit different in movie terms? I don't know if they've gotten to the point where they have a lot of the proceduralism working live. I think Mm -hmm. the dream is that you have a procedural staircase. And if the director says, I want it to be a little bit wider or a little bit taller, that asset is live in the game at runtime. Um, So that's a giant hard problem to crack, right? Because games are not designed or game engines are designed to run lean and mean and not kind of dynamically change topology of things. So uh, we we had a joke that like the Unreal Static Mesh is called a Static Mesh for a reason because it's static. It's not mm-hmm. designed to be procedural and move around and kind of update update itself while you're playing the game. Yeah. Um, and they're they're making lots of strides and they have like procedural components and things now. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's the challenge is, which honestly a game doesn't really do for the most part. It's like how do you have the set be live? And you can make those edits. Um, and that's where you're seeing like Unity has some stuff when VR mode and Unreal has it too. But that's where we're kind of seeing more and more of that to where you're in the game, playing the game, making those decisions. Maybe the remote connection comes in to where you have 
an environment artist, an effects artist, an animator, all kind of live linked into the main hub session, mm-hmm. um, which really doesn't apply as much to a, a game developer. Um, it's not like you're in a play test and someone's like, oh, that door's too big. Let's kind of make it wider. Mm-hmm. Usually you write that down and then it takes three days to kind of come back and, and have another play test with that door fixed. Uh, but the goal would be you play the game, you say, okay, these are all the problems that we had with it. Someone can go through and people can fix it immediately. You launch the game again, all the things are fixed, then you're playing it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, we're still pretty far from it, but that's, that's what the film people are trying to solve towards like, how fast can we get those changes uh, updated? And eventually I think the game uh, industry will have to kind of be on we'll the benefit. same spot. Yeah. We'll benefit from that. Yeah, it is a tricky thing. <laughs> like, how how much do you want to be in those QA testing session and and really want to change it? <laughs> I don't think most artists wants to be there live to kind of fix doors. Uh, yeah, but I can definitely seat. it's the hot seat. Yeah, it's like, hey, just be on standby. We're play testing right now. It's like, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. It's just right up Jira bugs for me. But uh, yeah, the film said it does have a, its unique challenges. It is a special feature. Whatever they develop on that side would definitely fall back on this side and vice versa, which is what we've been doing. Um, so that, that this, what do you think really is the next evolution of proceduralism? Be, besides, you, you said AI driven is a cut, you know, unfortunately game companies don't really share data that would have solved the issues like just keep making games and this thing gets more powerful right but everyone has to build their own library and that takes time um other than that uh you were talking about like being able to proceduralize something and then have manual control within that system and then step back again um what else do you think is really kind of holding us back from a touch of a button and being, is it just purely being less subjective or what what is it exactly that we need to nail here to remove that barrier? I think the, well, all of those are problems. So I think the, the making the algorithms better. So like if that's powering with AI or or however you need to do it to like make the black boxes smarter, um, art directing, it is a giant problem. Um, part of the art directing being a problem is that the tools are still too hard to use. Right. Um, so I think that kind of, I think it's the biggest challenge is most artists are still not using those tools. Um, it's still, you have the tech artists and maybe they kind of wrap some stuff up. So, uh, an environment artist can use it. And maybe there's one or two more senior or slightly more technical people that are the ones doing and using those tools, but it's not one of those that's like a ZBrush. And even like, I think a good analogy is a substance painter to substance designer. Mm-hmm. Right now we're still in substance designer land. Mm-hmm. So there's some people that are going to go and they're going to do it, but we need that painter jump to where now everybody can jump in and use it. And they'll use the smart masks and they'll use the kind of the fast sliders to kind of get the look that they want, but they still have the full control. So again, to, to point at Allegrithmic or Adobe at this point, um, as a success story of proceduralism, I think that's the next step is how do you make it easy? And maybe the Promethean AI is that because it is very much UX driven and very much more friendly and more you type a command and it does it as opposed to be like, all right, let me load this file from this place and then turn it to this other place. And here's a bunch of sliders and, um, and make it a little more complicated. So I think lowering the bar of entry. So it's any artist can jump in and be like, yeah, I want to make a forest. Cool. Here's Mm -hmm. how you make a forest. 
This next episode is a fun one, uh, and it's with Daniel Bystead. So ba- Daniel Bystead is a senior character artist over at Embark Studios. So Embark Studios is something that you've probably been hearing a lot in recent years, especially since they just announced their, their project. It's made up of a lot of X-Dice wizards uh, from the Battlefield series, and a lot of attention is towards them because they are a small team and remain to be small, at least in the AAA sense, and are leveraging their strength in numbers by pushing for tools like what Luis has kind of been lecturing about, using proceduralism and whatever shortcut and workflows that are efficient to create what used to take 300 people and being achieved with a smaller team. And if you've seen their latest project and what they're doing over at Embark Studios, you know, you'll be a full-time believer that they are onto something with uh, just rethinking of how to make a game from scratch, right? If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. So this is from episode 271, Simplifying Efficient Workflows with Daniel Bystead. Enjoy. Yeah, I think in general, there, with game artists especially, there's a lot of um, wasted time mm. in, in each stage. And I think uh, the, the amount of versatilia programs kind of um we kind of get lost and that's like well i'm in zbrush now so i'm going to spend all my time in zbrush doing zbrush Mm -hmm. things right uh and then it kind of compartmentalized you know the end product which is you know a a model with textures on it right and uh and and there's like an overemphasis of each stage being perfect um Especially when you're working as an external development team outside the studio, there's like little gates put into place of like, we want the best quality each stage. It's like, well, no one really works like that because in the end, it's like, what's the end product and what's the deadline and how I get there shouldn't matter. But yeah, I think because of game development and getting so more, much more complex with teams being bigger, but budgets being bigger, that mm. leads naturally think gates are like the best way to be efficient. Um, instead of just, you know, a little trust in the senior artists of like, let me just, I'll get there. Just tell me when the deadline is. It's like, well, when do I, how can I check you on each stage to make sure that you're going? Yeah, it, it, it did. Mm-hmm. It does feel like the last few years, it's kind of, kind of morphed into that weird, um, weird thing. And I, I think I, I caught myself and it's like, well, I mean, I guess they can use this for marketing at some point, <laughs> like just a pretty high res image. Uh, but rarely that's the case, right? Uh, it's yeah. a lot of wasted work and time in, in those little areas, especially. Yeah, I can't imagine for creature and character. So you've been seeing a huge shift then uh, for, for that department, especially um, that... Uh, like these programs are, are kind of disabling that those bad habits of over over sculpting and and doing these things right. 
Yeah, I think um, especially uh, repetitive work. Um, a, a very, I mean, there's there's a handful of sculpting softwares out there, right? Yeah. And and most of them are, um, I mean, really good when it comes to sculpting. You can you know go high poly and and do a great sculpting work there. But um, the interesting thing in Blender is that you can use all the other parts as well. Um, yeah. So you can use, you know, class simulation and um, things like that, adding hair, um, which is procedural and not like, oh, Hand every placing. vertex is a thing that you have to move with your brush. Yeah. Um, and also you have uh, instances. So I've, I've been experimenting with you know just so for instance uh, if you are creating a lizard uh, godzilla for instance um, right. what you would do in a traditional sculpting software is uh, you would sculpt all of these you know little yeah. plates on yeah. its back right that's a lot of plates yeah but in blender you could basically create just three plates or so and then yeah. you just do a so-so job with each of them. And then, then you just instance those across the back. Mm-hmm. And then you go back and, and like hand sculpt it better. And all, and all of those instances uh, will be updated. And, and then you can replace them or you know, add more geometry to them or change them to a... Uh, something else entirely Uh, yeah i definitely agree with you there like there's um you know i'm an environment guy so with environment you never really need to sculpt really anything right (laughs) unless you really want to but like when you're in a a, a zbrush programmer you know it doesn't have the advantages of the instances and all these procedural things that are more computer generated than than uh, artist uh, instructions, right? So uh, it, it, there's always seems to be like a handicap if I fully dedicate my time on that side and then coming back. I mean, I, I mean the the bridging and all that stuff. I've always tried to help with that with Gozi stuff, but like those little times that you switch back and forth, it just builds up. Uh, yeah, as they're more, it's, it gets tiring uh, switching program to program, and it, it kind of kills the flow. Is kind of like yes. what you're you're kind of talking about. That flow is so important. I mean, yeah, it's, especially um, if you're. I mean, if you're picking up an asset that you worked on uh, a week ago. Yeah, I don't and remember. Then you have to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, I have to open this file, and then this file, and then yeah. this file, and yeah, it's yeah. like. Oh, did did I have the ZBrush version updated with the Maya version? Uh, right, I, right. I think so. And then you have to, uh, the, uh, yeah, it's a lot of file management for sure. That <laughs> I have a bad habit of like making it quick and saving onto my my desktop, right? But like my desktop <laughs> just gets filled with like all these stupid files uh, eventually, uh, and it just becomes a mess. And I hate that. And, uh, yeah, it's just a bad, it's a bad way of doing things. I, I, I do like the fact that it, it seems like the movement now, it's not about having all the programs for every specialized thing. It's more about what's the one program that can do it all. Because, um, and for, for good reason, because a lot of these programs don't survive, like the very specialized program, 
right? It's like, ah, this is not going to make it. It's not enough. It's like completely dedicated to UV. <laughs> like Rizum, right? I was like, oh, Rizum seems to be fun. Make it easier. But like, ah, it's just for UV. This is not going to survive. <laughs> UV is not that hot for people to kind of invest, you know, learning a program for and, and stuff. And it's always that danger, right? The danger of like, well, should I really bet on this and, and learn this program and hope that it's around five, 10 years from now, right? Like I've kind of abandoned so many softwares in the past that kind of have PTSD <laughs> from learning new things, right? Yeah. So, but it's, it's, uh, but it's also exciting to learn new things, right? It is, but I'm like yeah. at a point where I rather have reliable software uh, mm. than, than keep learning these specialized software that don't survive because I have yeah. so many like a graveyard of softwares that just aren't around anymore. Just not enough support. Right. Because business is real. Right. So, um, someone yeah. is buying them all. I know. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of want to ask you about this because, you know, being a creature and character artist, um, you know, you're finding efficiencies in your workflow. Um, you know, MetaHuman just came out. Right. And that's mm, something yeah. that seems to be like the mega scans for character. I dived into a bit, but I would love to kind of hear your perspective being that's your discipline and, and your thoughts on it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's one of those things. Uh, it's very similar to when um, uh, 3D scanning started happening with yeah. characters, you know, with, with heads. So right. you had a, there was a bunch of, uh, you know, tutorial maker people who was into sculpting uh, a couple of years back was like everything you need to know is anatomy you need to focus on anatomy and now right, right. You know, now it's like well you don't sculpt people you just bring in the scan kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, right right and um at least in a lot of the um for a lot of the character assets. Um, but then you have, sure, you have some hero character assets that you will, you know, sculpt and, and have a, you know, create a proper character and, you know, you have a art director that has a certain vision for the character. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, you know, opportunities for people who just want to sculpt faces that has gone out the window for sure. Oh, yeah. And, and that's, that's why I think it's important not to just put all your eggs in one basket. I think it's it's good to have a really good to have a specialty and try to, but also try to you know uh, look at what what is tangenting to my specialty. What what else can I learn? Uh, because there, it's all also a, a huge danger in trying to learn everything. I'm. I'm kind of stupid enough to try to do that, but it's very challenging, you know, try to, um, a lot of my personal projects I do, you know, I do everything like, yeah, uh, lighting and rigging and, you know, characters and, uh, and it's very time consuming and challenging and, and I fake a lot of the stuff, uh, you know, as well, just to get things done. But, um, yeah, to answer your question, I think, yeah, I think MetaHuman will eat up a lot of the opportunities. But but there's also 
all of the other stuff, uh, like outfits and things like that for characters, which we can still create. So, yeah. Well, I mean, like, it seems to be not being a character artist, it seems to be the shift because base, base models are usually provided. You guys don't really uh, do things from scratch anymore. Uh, no, no, no. Not right. It, um, and you did bring an interesting point. It seems like you guys got hit twice uh, with the... <laughs> so, this is your second second uh, readjustment. <laughs> uh, because, you know, you know, animation had, had like the mocap scare, right? It's like, mm. do we have... And of course, that was adjustment where you're just going to have to fix up mocap. Yeah. And then... I don't, uh, yeah, I remember you, guess, you mentioned that before. Uh, yeah. But it's it's like the jobs don't go away anyway because there was there's more animators more than ever now exactly yeah. adjustments you know mega scans we we just got hit right uh, people scanning everywhere in the last five yeah. years photogrammetry just just kind of blew up like a lot of what you guys did you know at, over EA and, and stuff uh, and, and dice you know uh, kind of opening up that door and. Uh, there's definitely an adjustment. It's like, I don't know any environment guys sculpting rocks anymore. I mean, that used to be a thing. <laughs> the bombardment of rock tutorial is like, this is how you really make sure that the rocks look good. It's like, I'll just take a picture. <laughs> yeah. Nobody wants to do that Thank anymore. Um, but I think it's good because this, this is what I was talking before. It's like artists are more um, needing to lean towards either the idea man or the technical guy, uh, because the these tools are becoming so available now, where uh, there's better use of your time to kind of learn how to talk to these tools rather than um, you know learning anatomy. Now, I mean, it doesn't seem like it, it sounds like great background knowledge. You know, obviously, there's a a strong foundation of an artist to know anatomy, but it's like to absolutely have it as a character artist, it doesn't seem to be too much of a case anymore. We're, we're trying to ship something, you know, um, mm. have that changed greatly or is it more like my blank observation of, of what you guys do? <laughs> Sorry, I, I missed the question. So what? like uh, the, a huge shift from, I, I think when I was beginning, like, 10 12 years ago anatomy was like an absolute necessity if you want to be a character artist mm. don't don't you have to perfect it right uh to even think about being a character artist right but now it feels like so many tools are available and the way the company structure is when it comes to creating characters there's a lot of reuse um more like frankensteining and kit bashing sort of right and then outfits becomes like more of the the highlight of a character more so than the what's beneath because you really unless mm. it's conan or or someone that's <laughs> bare chesting it uh anatomy gets really seen um on a surface level yeah um i st- as an artist i still think foundation uh, is king yeah yeah i mean learning uh anatomy and stuff like that is important if you want to create you know you your personal art and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But in, I think in, in production, there, there is a lot of reuse and you use a lot of scan data for humans. Uh, right. def- <laughs> definitely. Um, so 
it, it also, I mean, it's not all bad. It opens up the door for uh, more junior uh, people to come in and, and do character art, like start with, off with, you know, I'm doing a bag for this character or things like that. You can sort of split up a character and, and help out um, being multiple artists. Um, on one character if there's a shortage of time mm. um but of course everyone all all artists wants to you know own their character and do as much as possible of it uh, by themselves i think um but yeah uh i think <laughs> anatomy skills are not not useless <laughs> not it's not useless but it's it's not as important anymore because there's so much more uh usage of scans yeah. but now uh there's yeah there's more shift towards um you know stylized yeah. hair yeah and and definitely doing stylized characters that's even more interesting now because then you get to create something that didn't exist from the start, right? Right. So last but not least, uh, this is my personal favorite uh, from a longtime guest that has been on a few times. Uh, this is with Scott Knapp. So Scott Knapp had, had an illustrious career, jump between movies and games. Uh, working on the Batman versus Superman and a bunch of Marvel movies like uh, The Avengers. Uh, and he's a lighting artist that also serves his time uh, when he's not working on badass movies, uh, working on badass games. And uh, lighting as a whole has been in hot demand in recent years. And he was able to kind of share his experience uh, about the beginning of his career, but also uh, how in recent years he's been able to use what he's been learning from the ground up in games and uh, effortlessly um, being able to jump around, uh, still utilizing the same tools and skills that he's been gathering uh, throughout his career. So this is from actually gdux.me and it's a talk that he gave uh, in episode 269, Flowing Between Worlds, Lighting and Gains in Films with Scott Knapp. Enjoy. The idea of not having to bake light maps and stuff, uh, super exciting. Dude. <laughs> yeah. Having uh, real-time global illumination and uh, sharp shadows on, you know, million billion i think they have a couple billion polygons in their scene is like insane dude so mm. it's stuff that we've like these constraints uh just being lifted and with that uh time too like not having to bake not having to wait around for stuff yeah. uh being able to completely light in real time and, and see exactly what your image is going to look like is a huge time saver like uh there'll be times where i'm at work and i don't really know what something's going to look like until i do a, a production bake so a lot of times I'll do my production bakes before I go to sleep at night and I'll wake up the next morning and see how it was. Uh, but you can imagine like that iteration is super slow. And even with like preview quality bakes for a lot of our environments, it takes like 15 minutes uh, to really see what it's going to look like even at a preview preview level. So uh, being able to light in real time 
uh, with it looking that good with like that kind of bounce light and stuff is, is crazy exciting uh, because it's just going to make things look way better. Artists are going to be able to craft things way faster. Uh, it's going to be able to get art directed way better because you'll be able to have people tweak things uh, next to each other in real time and really like block out what a scene's going to look like. So I'm stoked, man. This is a question from uh, Burn. How hard or is easy was the transition from games to film? Stressful, the change between the two industries with deadlines, etc. Um, there's a little bit of stress. Like it, it's, you know, I, I think you get a little bit of um, imposter syndrome, right? Uh, a lot of times when you're starting something new, so you're like, oh, dude, I don't belong here. These people are freaking pros. You not know? me, bro. But you not pick me. things up quickly. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's like <laughs> learn from me, guys. Step back. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But yeah, dude, like it's it's uh it can be nerve wracking a little bit, but just get out of your own head and just be dependable and don't be afraid to ask questions. Like even if it makes you look like a noob, that's okay because you will be a noob. Like when you're when you're transitioning, you're you know you're just learning a lot of this stuff. Um, try to do as much research as you can and learn stuff before you get that job, but you know, it's okay to ask questions. And even if it makes you look a little dumb, at least you won't mess something up because messing something up makes you look way worse. So if you render something badly or you have the wrong settings or you're not doing things properly within the pipeline, it's going to be way worse than just asking a dumb question. So um, I think as long as, you know, you're willing to to really dig in and learn, uh, you're going to learn something new at every studio you go to, too. Like even working within film, I've used probably like four or five different renders and tools because uh, each studio has their own pipeline. So they're not expecting you to know everything about their pipeline because you haven't worked there yet. So it's, it's okay to, to have that little bit of growth. A lot of times they'll have uh, learning programs. Like when I was at digital domain, they have really, really good proprietary stuff for Maya that helps lighting just like way, you know, manage things way better than Maya out of the box. So if you can light, uh, you know, using Maya's default stuff, you can definitely light using a studio's proprietary tools because they're making things better and cleaner for artists to come through and stuff. Great. Uh, so this is a question. What are your recommended resources for upcoming lighting artists to learn from? And uh, let's answer that one first. He has two questions. Dude, I, uh, for me, it was a lot of, a lot of tutorials. Like in school, I didn't have a lot of teachers that, that were super familiar with lighting. A lot of them were animators or, or a layout artist or something. So yeah, like I, I just went deep on tutorials. Uh, Noman usually has pretty decent ones. Some of them are dated at this point, but a lot of the the theory and stuff is still really, really relevant. Um, tutorials that I fell in love with early on that probably still hold up today. Uh, Jeremy Vickery is he's a really, really good lighting artist from Pixar. He put out some Noman DVDs like way back in the day. Um, and that dude's like a double threat. He's able to, to do concept painting and uh you know digital lighting so he's he's just a stud and he's also moved back and forth between film and games like he worked at pixar for a long time then i think he was at naughty dog uh ubisoft and stuff so um yeah i would say learn from from tutorials uh there's documentation you know i would say be a little bit wary of of uh youtube tutorials because sometimes there's some bad information but also reach out to people you know um, I've done mentorships with people in the past, like official mentorships. So, you know, that's something that I might consider in the future. So I could be a resource to help people learn, um, 
yeah, reach out to people. Uh, all I can say is, dude, leave me alone. <laughs> like, try not to pester people. You don't want to be like, uh, you don't want to be bugging people about stuff. But a lot of times, uh, people know what it's like to start out. So they're willing to kind of give back and, and help people learn and stuff. Yeah, I think this is definitely a relative. Um, there's a cool way to social distance before social distancing was cool, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you kind of read the situation. And in, in, uh, at conventions, of anything, it's, um, it's, it's a lot more intimidating to walk up to professionals and you have all these weird um, quirks, right, that you have to work over. But online, I, I think there's a way to kind of compose your message and and, and, and time it correctly and, and come across a little bit safer. Uh, but 100%. Then, yeah, but, you know, the other side of that is it's so it feels so approachable that people go overdo it, right? Um, and, I, and if anything, I, I always uh, related to how people should sell things, right? You're selling somebody, you're selling yourself essentially to somebody mm-hmm. for a possible mentorship for advice. Um, there has to be an exchange in value somehow, right? There has to be, a, yeah. the more that you can create that benefit for the person you're asking something from and, 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 and giving them uh, some value in return, uh, the better the exchange, um, the, the more invested they will be to kind of help you. So you got to figure that out. Uh, yeah. Cause yeah. you're, you're, you're paying for someone's time at that point. Right. And yeah. people get off work, they have families and stuff. So, you know, answering a bunch of questions might not necessarily be what they want to do at that moment. But like you're saying, like if there is like a, some kind of more formal thing, like I know CGMA has really, really good uh, mentorships and programs. So there's stuff where you just, you know, instead of going to school, you might be able to just do something like that. And, you know, it's a little bit of money, but it's worth it uh, for things like that. So uh, this is a question from Roberto. Uh, would it be better to have animated models instead of static when doing lighting? Uh, what is the difference? Um, I think so. Yeah, I think having some kind of dynamic uh, movement is important when showing off your lighting just because uh, you're able to see how shadows and reflections are playing off a surface. Seeing the spec highlights and stuff uh, and how they roll off a surface is really important. So if there's no movement, uh, it's hard to see a lot of that stuff. Uh, so screenshots are good, but having like a subtle camera move, like a pan or a tilt, um, just something to show it off. If you can have animation, that's even better. Uh, as long as it's good animation, if you have like really dodgy animation, uh, it's just going to make your whole piece look like shit. So I'd recommend, uh, working with someone who's actually an animator, making sure it's good. Otherwise, uh, just keep it static and move your camera. This is a question from Burn again. Do you see yourself staying in the game industry now or still jumping from games to films? Uh, for now, I'm, I'm really liking video games. Like it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more slow paced, I guess. Uh, the, the deadlines aren't as tight. Uh, at least at Turtle Rock, the, the overtime has not been an issue at all. Um, when I was working at other studios in, in television and visual effects, I've done 19, 20 hour days, like two days, three days a week, uh, sometimes. And that's not super typical, but it's not uncommon either. Um, you know, it's a lot of times, especially when things are getting tight with film, you could expect to be doing like 10, 12 hour days pretty regularly. And I'm sure some game studios are the same way. Uh, but at least at Turtle Rock, it's, it's been sick, man. Like 
we've really been trying to manage scope and, and do things to make it so people aren't working crazy hours. All right, guys. So that concludes part two of five series of the best of 2021. I hope you guys enjoy and learned as much as I did talking to these amazing guests this past year. I feel very fortunate that they were able to spend one hour of their day uh, to talk with me and and share the knowledge uh, because they are the pioneers uh, of what's happening out there uh, in the game industry and, and forging basically what we're seeing already in 2022. So, um, again, proceduralism and things basically and uh, making things easier through whatever shortcuts we can find is the name of the game and the theme for the next five, 10 years. So uh, if you guys are liking the portions of the episode that was shared, you know, go back and listen to the full episode because there's all types of nuggets uh, from that treasure chest. So until tomorrow, I'll see you guys again. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you are liking the podcast, go to the Apple iTunes store and give Game Dev Unchained a five-star rating. This will help spread the joy and love and exposure for the podcast, and we thank you very much. If you want to continue the conversation, go to our Discord, which can be found on our website, www.gamedevunchained.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at BlueChamps, B-L-U-C-H-A-M-P-S. You want to catch these episodes live every Tuesdays and Thursdays, go to twitch.tv forward slash blue underscore champs. Email me any of your concerns or questions that you want me to read aloud at the beginning of each episode at info at gamedevunchained.com. And if you want to further support us and help unlock the next feature, which is the voicemail future, go to patreon.com forward slash blue champs this gives listeners a chance to kind of call in leave a message for both me and the guests to answer your deepest darkest questions and comment on your deepest darkest secrets thank you everybody